You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. On today's episode... We're talking spring scouting, or postseason scouting, depending on your climate. Historically, we've each placed a different level of reliance on the strategy of gaining intel on hunting land, and sometimes look for very different things. We also touch on shed hunting and why shed hunting and spring scouting shouldn't necessarily always be lumped together. Yeah, we got a ton of snow last night. That wasn't fun. <clears throat> Man, it looks like it. How much did you guys end up getting? It's tough to say for sure because it started off with like, I don't know, maybe a quarter inch of ice, kind of rain, you know, mix that froze over and then started snowing on top of that. And then it got really windy. So there's drifts everywhere. It's so like where you see down at the base of my driveway, it was like taller than the snowblower could handle. So I actually had to shovel myself out of the driveway this morning. Man. And you just got back from your first trade show of the year, right? Yeah. Or not trade yep. show, but. Yeah, consumer show. Yeah, I just got back from. Outdoor Rama in Novi, Michigan, just outside of Detroit. How was that? It was pretty good. Uh, it was long. I mean, it was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, four days at like 10 hours each day. So it was pretty long. So were you, just, that, it was, were you just man in the booth by yourself when John was doing his seminars? Yeah, so his seminars were only supposed to be like an hour, but after his seminars – they were supposed to be an hour. They could go up to an hour and a half, and then I guess all the questions. So there, I mean, there was times it would be like two, two and a half hours before I'd see John again because he'd be tied up from his uh, from his seminars and answering questions. Yeah, I bet. That makes sense. And then when's the next one? Uh, the 14th through the 18th, I think, in Columbus, Ohio, the Ohio Deer and Turkey Expo. Looking at all these pictures on Instagram of people shed hunting and like Dan, he just posted a picture of a bunch of sheds and did that podcast on it. And I'm looking outside, I'm like, man, I got another couple of weeks before I can even think about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's definitely interesting to see the rise of shed hunting over the past few years. And the amount of restrictions that have started to go up, especially in some of the Western states. Yeah. I think I read that Colorado, yeah. you can't even go out until, like, May or something. Yeah, and I think Nevada just passed some kind of crazy 
shed hunting regulation. I don't even know what it is. But I think it's a good thing, personally. Yeah, I mean, they got the wintering areas that they're used to being in low stress at a high stress, you know, point of their yearly cycle. So can understand yeah. the, the reasons why they're in place. Yeah, especially when it when and if you have a hard winter. Like last year, we had a really hard winter here. You know, so the deer are already stressed, and then you get their people out there <laughs> trying to scoop them up before everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. So for <clears throat> for spring scouting, the topic of today's discussion, it I would tend to guess, and you're going to obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say that you probably don't place as much stock in spring scouting as probably I have. Right. Because you're more of an in-season guy, whereas historically yep. I've – try to get as much intel as I can in the spring more so than in the fall. Yeah, to me the only benefit of of whether you want to call this, you know, in or postseason scouting or spring scouting, whatever you want to call it, is you can see more of the vegetative cover that's relevant to you during deer season now versus you and their summer scouting. It's going to look thick but that has a lot of variant on what type of tree or uh, vegetation is in the area. You know, it may look really thick in the spring or in the summer when you set up, but then come fall, you may be wide open. Right. So to me, that's a real only benefit that I see to, to postseason or spring scouting. So for you, the, you know, assuming you're going to go spring scouting or postseason scouting, what you want to look for is some period of time after any snow has melted, but before things have started to green up, say like before turkey season really starts to get into full swing. Yeah, exactly. To me, I mean, you can use, you know, scouting in the snow, but it kind of, because of the weather, it dictates the movement of the deer a little more than if there's no snow on, to me at least. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's definitely the case up here. I was just out in the woods uh, one last weekend and the places that you see the deer sign now are not necessarily where you're going to see the deer sign back in the fall, just because they haven't been pressured now for a couple of months really. And, uh, it's been cold. There's snow obviously. So they're bedding closer and moving closer to where they can find those food sources. And those food sources might not even be in the same spot. So I kind of think of it as like snow scouting is good for late season next year but not necessarily fall next year. Yeah, exactly. It's there's there's a transition point where the deer become so stressed because of, you know, lack of forage or lack of browse, so that tr there's a transition between, you know, late fall season hunting and winter hunting basically. So if you're scouting in the snow like right now where you're at, there's still a ton of snow. Like you said you're mostly scouting for that same type of uh, ground cover with the snow next year as compared to, you know, late November time frame. Yeah. Although, you know, there's certain places that I go just depending on what kind of regulations they have the right, it really forces my hand. The, the rules do because there's one place where you can't step foot on the property to, to walk your dog or bird watch or scout or anything from March 1st through August 31st can't step foot on it's just a total 
sanctuary for that time period. So then I have to scout in January and February, and then that places a little bit higher um, importance on in-season scouting and aerial scouting versus the actual postseason scouting, which is really only good for that late season. But a lot of the other places that I hunt, it's kind of dependent, I think, on whether or not it's a wet area, like a marsh, or if it's a dry area, like some of the hill country properties. Because if I'm hunting an area where it's more wet, I can walk a lot further and I can cover a lot more ground if that ground is frozen. So the ideal time for me to scout that type of location would be after the snow is melted, but before the ice melts. So I can still walk because there's still plenty of time after that snow melts where you still have, you know, a foot of ice or essentially the marsh is completely frozen all the way down to the muck. And it takes a while for that ice to start to dissolve and break up. So you can still walk on it for a decent amount of time, depending on how warm the temperatures actually are before it finally starts to break up and you start breaking through. So that's been always kind of the ideal time. If I can get out then, that's always going to be the best. Whereas like some of the hill country spots, it doesn't really matter as much what the ice is doing because there's really not much water there apart from, you know, creek bottoms and that type of thing. So then I can scout those type of locations all the way up through the green up, at which time usually turkey season is rolling in and Sometimes even <clears throat> spring turkey hunting will turn into deer scouting if it's been a slow enough day, but preferably I'd like to get a lot of that work done before it gets green. Yeah, that's a big thing is getting it done before it turns green, which reduces your visibility. You know, so obviously you're not going to be able to cover as much ground visually as well as, you know, you're, I mean, you're covering the same amount of ground walking, but your visual distance has reduced because of the spring green up. One of the things with the the hill country versus like the marsh is for the most part, even in some of the snowy weather in the hill country, you're still going to be able to identify your funnels, your pinch points, like fence crossings and things like that, even in some snow compared to like heavy snow, you know, like what you have right now, maybe not because it may change your pattern a little bit, but I always like, like when I was in Missouri or in the South, like in Arkansas, the days where you would get snow and they would only be on the ground for a day or two is to use that day, like the last day before you think it was going to melt, to go out and identify these funnel areas where because of the weather, it really didn't change the deer's patterns too much, but it could help you identify fence crossings, uh, creek crossings, stuff like that to really good find help you find good pinch points late in the year. Yeah, that's a good tip. I find myself trying to do that kind of thing as well. Ultimately, it always depends on when you can get out in the woods. be great if you can get out you know, right after that, or right before that snow melts, but it seems like, you know, <laughs> every now and then, um, just based on when I can get out, it seems like I get out right after the next snowstorm hits, and then it's, you know, kind of like a fresh slate again. So timing is definitely of the essence with that type of scouting. So what else in late season scouting like this, what are you keying into, what are you looking for um, specifically other than using the snow, like what other types of things are you specifically looking for? In late season scouting, when there's, when there's still snow on the ground, for me, it's just, you know, obviously there's no leaves on the trees, so I can still pick out potential trees that I would want to hunt because they're going to look, the trees are going to look the same. The deer sign might not be what it's going to be in the fall, but at least the areas are. So if I'm able to pick out certain terrain funnels, especially in hill country, where it's going to be a little bit, you know, more obvious with those, hard funnels, then I can, you know, kind of pick that out. But otherwise I'll leave a lot of that stuff 
and just not touch it throughout the winter and come back in the spring once the snow melts to be able to do a lot of that scouting. Do you key in on like this year's rubs um, or maybe if you didn't have enough snow, you know, maybe old scrapes that you've seen, do you key towards that kind of stuff as well or you strictly looking for tree placement and, you know, deer movement? The way I kind of look at it is if I can find buck sign like that, if it's just kind of random or sporadic, it tells me that there's deer in the area, but that's about all it tells me. If there's, you know, like a nice rub line next to a bedding area, then I'd take a little bit more stock in it. But what I'm primarily looking for once that snow starts to melt is two things. Uh, one would be bedding and two would be trees that I can set up on either in relationship to that bedding or trees that I can set up on in relation to some kind of terrain funnel. And that's obviously going to depend, you know, where it's located. Hill country, I usually spend more time looking at the hard terrain funnels, whereas marsh, it's harder to identify those, those funnels uh, quite so much. So I'll spend a lot more of my time looking for bedding itself in marshes. And it's also a lot more predictable to find bedding in marshes versus the hill country where it, the bedding is a little bit less predictable in my experience. Yeah, I could imagine in a marsh, like I said, especially if it's a little frozen over, you're really not going to have those funnels. I mean, the deer could basically walk anywhere through that marsh that it wanted to, so it's going to be really hard to key in on those funnel crossings when it's frozen compared to when it's thawed out. So I could see how that could be a, a pretty confusing venture. Yeah, and I mean, sometimes I've seen them used like, you know, little things like beaver dams to cross creeks going through marshes, but I've also seen them just, you know, completely bypass those areas and just walk through the creek. So it can be, like you said, a little bit tougher to, to nail down those terrain funnels. They'll still use transition lines, like one type of tree to another, or like red brush transitioning to cattails, that type of thing. But if I can find a bed, and a lot of my marsh strategy scouting is based on what I've learned over the years, kind of learning from like Dan Infall strategies. I find that they work pretty well in the areas that I'm hunting. So a lot of that, this is kind of where it stems from. And if I can find the bed and then I can find a tree next to the bed, whether it's that first tree that's actually accessible next to the bed, because I can usually find several trails that lead from that bed, the more likely, or the closer I am to the bed, the more likely I'll be on one of the trails that that deer ends up taking if he's going to move out of that bed before it gets dark. So that's kind of what I'm looking for in the marsh. And it'll be <clears throat> from that point, once I find a tree, is this a tree that I'm going to want to get way up in the tree? Is this a tree where I'm only going to be able to get six, eight feet up? Is it a good saddle tree? Is it a good tree stand tree? How many sticks do I want to bring? Where exactly do I want to set up? If it's an area where I'm able to clear out lanes, do I want to come back in and make a, a clearing? Because usually the first pass, I won't bring any like saws or, or clippers or anything. I'll just gather as much intel as I can and then try to make some kind of secondary trip to really prep out and, and plan exactly how I'm going to climb the various trees. Um, but that's kind of, the, in the nutshell, that first scouting trip for the marsh. That's, you know, to me, one of the things why I really don't put a, like, lean a whole lot on postseason scouting is I want to know what type of trees and vegetation is in that area. And I know late season you can identify, well, that's an oak, you know, that's a hickory. But, but when you get down to, like, you know, picking out other types of browse that might be in there, like coral berry or stuff like this um, that's in the area, you know, late winter you really can't 
determine what all type of browse is in the area compared to in-season scouting. You know, like you could see a persimmon tree, for example, late this time of year, you know, late fall, spring, whatever you want to call it. And um, that may be a male persimmon tree, so it may not produce any fruit. Well, yeah, obviously you can go back in the spring and or in the summer, you know, when fruit starts to bear on that tree and be able to determine whether it's male or female. So that's just kind of my, one of my things that I've always been kind of leery of is I wanted to know what type of browse or forage is in that area for that deer. It may look like a good area, but if there's not, you know, the right type of forage in that area, the deer may not even be in that area a whole lot. So when you're doing in-season scouting, I'm going to assume you're not really looking for bedding at all. You're looking for deer sign. You're looking for the things the deer are feeding on. You're looking for hot funnels for the most part. I'm looking for all of that put together. So if I jump deer up, you know, I'm looking to see where that deer jumped up from, what was it an escape route. Um, you know, if I set up in a stand location and I see deer moving, you know, on a ridge or two away and notice I'm browsing on something, I want to go over there and see what they're browsing on. So then I can say, okay, they're browsing on, you know, this particular species. So now I can go to my knowledge and expand and look around to see where in my you know, where have I been on this property where that particular type of forage is? So then I can kind of key back towards that particular type of forage. It's kind of almost like a a chicken versus the egg argument. If you rely mostly on in-season scouting, you can determine where the deer are going to be right now. And you're kind of guessing on where they're bedding versus if you find where the deer are bedding post-season scouting, then you might do a little trial and error cat and mouse figuring out which beds they're using at a specific time, but then it doesn't really matter as much what they're feeding on or, or what transitions they're using after dark. So I think probably in certain areas, they're probably, you know, one area will cater better toward a certain strategy versus the other. The way I kind of think of it too, is if I can understand all the potential beds in a specific location, then even if, you know, half of those beds aren't being used. If systematically throughout the season, I'm able to, to check things off the list, then I know that, you know, kind of as I get that list narrower and narrower, I'm a lot more likely to find, I know where to go next, to put it in simple terms. I know which spots are still on the list that need to be checked out. And if it's got a hot food source by it, cool. If it doesn't, well, there's still a chance that those deer might be there anyway. It's a little bit more, I think, I guess, targeted like a, a rifle approach versus a shotgun approach to choosing a tree stand for a given day. Yeah, very much so. I mean, you're you're using the past history to determine to where you ne- need to be compared to using the current what's going on to determine where you need to be. Because it could very be that, you know, based off like kind of my in-season strategy that suddenly, you know, a new white oak tree started dropping acorns in a better flat and I'm not hunting that particular flat. And all of a sudden the tree that was hot is now cold. So then I have to go, okay, well now what, you know, obviously they were hitting white oak acorns, but what tree did they switch to or what, what trees dropping better acorns for them, basically, you know, compared to your hunting that transition from the bed to that tree. Whereas I'm kind of more hunting at that tree, basically, because that tree's dropping your previous knowledge of the bedding area and trails gives you the knowledge to know where that deer is coming from heading to that area. Right. And if I can find, say, like a secluded oak tree that you can't tell in the spring if it's going to have acorns that fall, but I know that there's an oak tree there, 
and then I go there sometime in September for an early season hunt and it is dropping acorns and it's like, oh, cool. Yeah, this is going to be great. Versus if it's not dropping acorns and it's kind of like a letdown and well, that's my hunt for the day and then I'll go somewhere else the next day. Um, <clears throat> but to a certain extent, it's like if I, if I know where the deer is coming from or I can assume where the deer is coming from, it doesn't really matter which tree he's going to as long as the route that he takes from the bed is the same for those first couple hundred yards. If he deviates after that point, it might not matter. Yeah. And maybe some, maybe some of it too is, is just how much daylight movement you're expecting to get. And a lot of that has to do with the pressure, you know, so obviously the more pressured areas you hunt, the more those deer are going to move later at during the daylight hours, basically, so that you have to hunt closer to the bedding areas compared to less pressured areas you can hunt closer to the actual destination point so i can hunt closer to the oak trees if i'm hunting less pressured area compared to higher pressure area you have to hunt closer to the bedding area to be able to catch those same deer right and i can't tell you how many times i've been set up right you know within a couple hundred yards of the bedding area sometimes closer and it's just completely silent all evening uh, and it gets down to last light i climb down out of my stand get ready to start walking out and then I can hear the deer snorting. It was like they were there the whole time. They just didn't even think about moving until after dark. And then at that point, the hunt is ruined. You can check that spot off the list and go onto the next one. Cause you know, you just burn that bridge. Yeah. And with then that's the big <laughs> thing about the postseason scouting, finding the beds, especially in high pressured areas. If you can find those bedding areas, like you said, you can, you can push your luck and get in there as close as you can, because you really know that's what you're going to need to do is get in as close to those bedding areas as you can so that you can get those deer as soon as they get up on their feet. You know, they may only have to go 50 or 80 yards from their bed, bedding area, and then you're right there basically where, you know, on an unpressured area, I may have to wait till that deer travels 200 yards from its bedding area to get to a staging location and feeding. Right. I think also doing the postseason scouting with the <clears throat> intent of trying to find beds can help people that are maybe trying to target specific deer versus somebody who's going to be happy with seeing deer or good bucks versus a buck. You know, it's like if you can find a bunch of specific beds and all of a sudden you find a bed where it's like, how am I going to set up on this bed? He's got every advantage and you've you got a big deer sign. It's like, you might not know exactly what deer is there, but you can pretty well be sure that it's a, a nicer one that's using that bedding area. Um, and even if that deer gets killed, the bedding area is so good for whatever reason that, you know, that some other big deer is going to end up moving in there. And I think that's what you can, the kind of Intel that you can get from postseason scouting that would be hard to get from other types of scouting. If you're after a specific deer in that, you know, whatever area you're in. Yeah. I mean, I kind of use a similar strategy, but I, it's kind of more of the, I guess Dan Infault calls it like the uh, the bump and hunt or something like that. You know, if I have an idea of where a buck is, you know, I'm one of those guys that I don't, if you bump a deer, I don't think it's going to necessarily blow out of the area unless you continually bump it out of that area. So if, if I've seen a buck come out into a certain, you know, a certain area and I think I know where he's at, I'm not afraid to go in there during in season and walk around to see if I can see that deer, see if I can bump it up to see where, if I can see where it's bedding, um, or see if I can find any closer, any better sign closer to where I think that deer is at. Yeah, the strategy that you're describing, 
I've also heard it called Bump and Dump. That's what um, it's called. Yeah. There's one of the DVDs. I can't remember which one it is. Andre DeQuisco does that a couple times on one of his properties. And he shoots some nice deer doing it where he essentially will go into a bedding area, bump out a huge deer, get visual on it, know which deer he's after, and he'll go walk it right in there, doesn't worry about a scent one bit, uh, picks his killing tree, goes up, trims any lanes that he needs to, sets up a stand, and then the next morning he's just there waiting. And obviously it, it definitely, if you've jumped up a big buck, it's like, you might as well. You got nothing to lose at that point. Right. Get in there before the deer realizes that he's actually in real trouble. And you you mentioned his scent. That's a big one, especially and this also goes back to the pressured versus non-pressured ground. You know, if a deer catches your scent, it might be a little bit more leery to come back in there. Whereas if, you know, your noise busts the deer up um, and it really doesn't know what you were that caused it to jump up out of its bed. I mean, I could, if you imagine a deer, how many times do you think a deer would get busted up out of its bed in a given week by something that it doesn't know? Whether that's a raccoon, a coyote, a squirrel, anything like that. You'd imagine it's quite a few times that something disturbed that deer in the woods and just caused it to... You know, just escape for safety, basically. You know, not not necessarily identify it as a threat, but just take the precaution and go ahead and escape. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. I think a lot of times it's pretty easy for us to think that we're the only things that are, a deer, in a, you know, the only thing that a deer worries about in the woods. But when you think about it logically, it's like we don't sound that much different than a lot of the other things that are walking around in the woods. We can be sitting there on stand, hear a twig crack, and we get all excited. We don't know what it is. It could be a squirrel. It could be a deer. It's the same thing for them. Exactly. And they're, <laughs> out, they're out there just a lot more than us. I mean, you've got to imagine it's got to happen a lot to them as much as it happens to us. I mean, how many times have you, you know, heard something coming and think it's a deer, and then here comes a squirrel comes hopping in? It happens to us all the time. Well, now a deer's out there all the time. So you're going to think, you know, they're going to get startled by something, whether a squirrel missed a tree limb and fell all the way to the ground or Anything like that's got to get them busted up as well. Yeah, and then there's probably a certain amount of noise that they get, you know, accustomed to or used to, especially when you talk about, like, farm areas where you got, um, you know, heavy machinery working on a, a daily basis and that deer might just get used to a certain noise and just kind of hang tight versus jump out of the bed every time that they hear something that they don't know what it is. Absolutely. <coughs> so... With postseason scouting um, comes shed hunting, really. Do you take any any merit off of where you where you find sheds if you're shed hunting um, in relation to where that deer is going to be in the fall? Or do you write it off as, you know, it's part of that, you know, late season, the deer's kind of shifted its patterns so that deer may not be near where its sheds are? Uh, I guess it kind of depends on where I find it. A lot of times I don't have access to the food sources to find sheds there because they might be feeding on ag that's part of private land that I don't have access to. But if I do find a, a shed in a bedding area, then it kind of becomes, is this a bedding area where I would expect that deer to be in the fall based on where I know other hunters go and um, where I saw deer activity or sign last year? If so, then I'd say, yeah, it's probably a decent likelihood that it could be that same deer using that bedding area next year. Or maybe he's you know, going to kick out some other buck from a better bedding area next year. Maybe he's gotten to that size or, or age. Don't really know, but I'd say it's probably a decent likelihood that that would be one of the bedding areas that he uses. 
Yeah, I'm pretty similar. I used, um, for an example, I found, uh, I think it was seven sheds, and they weren't all from the same year. They were a couple years old on a piece of private ground that I had, and they were all probably within 70 yards on the same ridge. And I used that knowledge from finding all of those sheds on that ridge to know, okay, this is probably a pretty good travel corridor for these bucks. And that's actually where I was able to take uh, that big five-and-a-half-year-old buck that I shot. Oh, geez, what was it, three years ago now? Um, I used that knowledge to go in and hunt that specific ridge to try to catch these bucks coming off that ridge. And so, I mean, that paid off for me. And like you, I think it depended a lot on where you find it. I mean, if you find it in a harvested cornfield, you know, in late February, yeah, that deer might or might not be there. Whereas, like you said, if you can find them in the timber or, you know, on the edge of fields maybe that aren't necessarily crop fields, you may have better luck hunting with that knowledge the next year. When you find sheds, do you have, I guess, a, a ratio about how many you find in food sources versus, you know, travel corridors or transition areas? No, I don't shed hunt, so most of my shed hunting is stumbling across them and be like, oh, hey, here's a shed. I mean, I can, I probably three times I've actively went out and been like, okay, today I'm strictly shed hunting. So I'm not a whole big shed hunting fan personally. Yeah, that's that's kind of me too. For the amount of time that I spend in the woods after the season and out in the spring and, and even in turkey season, I don't find a ton of sheds. And I think a lot of it is honestly because I'm not really having an eye out for them. I walk through enough bedding areas, but when I'm walking through these type of areas, I'm usually looking at the GPS to say I want to get there. I make a beeline, I get there, I look at what I want to look for, I move on to the next spot. My eyes are never really scanning the ground, and if I were looking for sheds, I'd want to slow down so much probably to be able to look better that I wouldn't get nearly as much work done. Yeah completely agree i mean i've never really like i said all mine have been found either turkey hunting uh just walking through the woods whether it's squirrel hunting or anything like that and stumbled on them and then obviously you find the first one you're like oh maybe there's some more sheds around and i kind of look for them but like you know going out like what dan johnson does and goes out and actively looks for them or spends the whole day out there walking around looking for them that's just that's not my cup of tea yeah, I mean, I guess if I had access to a lot of feeding areas, it might be different. You know, a good fun way to, to go spend a day in the spring um, versus just the, the general old just walk walk bedding areas and walk woods. I think it would be kind of a fun thing to do, especially if you know you're going to find something or know that you're likely to or you know there's big deer in the area and you're looking for, you know, looking to find a certain deer sheds. That put a little more excitement behind it. Yeah, especially if you've got a, a 200-inch deer that you're looking to find or somewhere, you know, 180 and you wanted to see whether that deer made it through the season or not, you can go out and, and really look for that particular deer. You know, even for me, you know, if it made it through, it made it through. If it didn't, it didn't. You know, that's that's part of nature. Yeah. Yeah, I always think it's kind of, uh, it's kind of funny a little bit when you see guys that are, distraught when like a, a buck gets killed by like a coyote or dies of old age in a bed or, or something it's like well it wasn't it wasn't yours you might have you know might have wanted it but natural cause that doesn't bother me at all yeah that's such a shame and it's like uh that's nature that happens happens every day deer gets hit by a car okay now that argument holds a little bit more weight yeah. Uh, but yeah 
the natural cause thing, I just you can't let it bother you. Yeah, I completely agree. Is you know, I think a lot of people are getting too caught up in this almost sense that they want to have some type of history with a deer before they shoot it. It makes it more rewarding for them, I guess. So whether they can, you know, you see a lot of pictures on social media where they'll take a picture with a deer they killed and they'll have the sheds laid out there in front of it. You know, that you've got the sheds from this deer for the past three years. You know, to me, that doesn't, that doesn't do anything for me. I know there's a lot of people out there that do it and it does for them and more power to them. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's exciting when you can pull something together like that, um, you know, kind of a multi-year journey, definitely pretty cool, but I almost, I've said this before, I get a lot of excitement when I don't know what deer are in the area and you hear those leaves crunching and you don't know what's going to be popping yeah. up behind that next tree. Yeah. Could be a I, fork, could be a 180, you don't know. When you look over your shoulder and you're like, holy cow, look at that deer. And then first thing you have to do is grab your binoculars to see what kind of deer it is, how big it is, what it is, versus looking over your shoulder and being like, oh, that's, you know, tall tin or whatever. You know, kind of, to me, it takes a little bit of the fun out of it, but that's me. I usually don't even go that far. I usually just look at it. I'm like, shooter or not? <laughs> like, it, it's usually that simple of a decision. Whatever that first, you know, that first initial reaction. Usually, it's enough for me to tell. Whatever your gut reaction is, is what you go with. Yep. Unless there, you know, there's been times over the years where that gut reaction is no, and then the deer gets closer and gives you the perfect shot for five minutes, and you start thinking about, well, it is getting pretty late in the season, and you know, all those thoughts start to go through your mind. I don't have very stringent standards on the deer that, that I kill. That buck that I mentioned that I killed on that ridge, when I saw that deer coming in, you know, I was unsure at whether it was a going to be a shooter deer or not because I was looking at it. And I was like, ah, I was trying to hold myself to shooting, you know, three and a half year old deer or older, and I was looking at the body of it. I was like, I'm not so sure about this deer, so I went ahead and drew back and was watching as it came in. And then, you know, it stopped in a shooting lane and like literally as soon as it raised its head, I could see that it's, you know, it's back swayed, it's belly dropped real low, had a big thick neck and there wasn't even a thought process that went through my mind. It was just like, I squeezed the trigger and off it went. And I was like, well, I guess that my mind decided that that deer was a shooter. <laughs> so it was just a, a smooth transition that I never even thought, okay, yeah, this is a shooter. It was like, as soon as it stopped, my brain recognized all those things put together and shot. Mm-hmm. I helped uh, a guy drag out a deer last fall. I just happened to randomly bump into him when I was walking through the woods, and he was in the process of dragging out a buck. And it was like a goofy looking, like weird five point. Had some like gnarly looking shape to his antlers. Um, <clears throat> but he was telling me we got to, you know to talking. He was telling me about all the the big deer that he had seen that year and some of the ones he had passed on. And you know I could tell that he wasn't just you know, bluffing. He seemed like he actually you know, really knew what he was talking about. And, uh, he's like, honestly, the thing just came in and gave me the perfect shot that I was waiting for is the day before firearm season started. He's like, it's not going to get any easier from the, from here on out. Spent a ton of time in the woods. My family's starting to, to get angry. You know, he's like, I just, I just had to do it. It was like a two mile, uh, drag to get that thing back, which even for me helping out, it was brutal. I'm sure it was even worse for him because he started a lot earlier, but I was like, you know, honestly, I don't blame you that much. For like, me, that's a big... Want, shoot what you want to shoot. Yeah, it's as much of the story and the experience being out there. You know, always... I can remember Fred Eichler one time on one of his TV shows. There was like a... He was caribou hunting in Alaska or somewhere, and 
there was like this cow caribou or this really small caribou that had gotten herded up on an island by a wolf. And the wolf was chasing this caribou around. And Fred Eichler got so mad at the guide because the guide wouldn't let him shoot that caribou. And he was like, but the story behind that caribou is amazing. He's like, I don't care that it's small or a cow. He's like, just the story behind that caribou, you know, being rounded out on this little island in the middle of this creek by a, a wolf. He's like, that's a cool story. He's like, I want to kill this thing. And the guy ended up taking his bow from him so he couldn't shoot it. <laughs> well, it's things like that that make it for me. a great story to get on video. Oh, exactly. That's part of the reason I film my hunts is it's like even if I don't end up firing an arrow, i got some cool stories that I can show people. Yeah. Oh, speak, speaking of other people, um, one of the things that I always keep a huge eye out for postseason scouting is other hunter sign. You might have sent wicks or tree stands that guys left up after their last sit and they haven't bothered to go back in and take it down yet because it's been cold and they just didn't want to deal with it until the summer. Or trail tacks. Trail tacks are a big one. Yeah. You know, especially on public land. I know when I was in uh, Arkansas, we did some night surveys on a national wildlife refuge for the refuge. And you would, we would drive through there doing spotlight surveys, basically. And you would shine the light through the woods, and literally you could see just a row of tacks on every tree for <laughs> 100 yards. And it's like, okay, yep, definitely don't want to hunt anywhere around here. Yeah, and it's tough when you're just going out at night. Uh, but a lot of times it's like you can kind of see that trail, and it's like, is this a is this a hunter trail? It seems kind of wide. You go back in there dark, it's like, oh, yeah, super obvious. Yeah. I can't understand why there's so many people still that use those tacks. It makes me wonder how old some of them are. But it's like for the technology that we have with GPSs and cell phones now, it's like to be able to still use tacks, it's like just giving away your, your position. They are pretty easy to follow, though. I won't give them that. We should create a poll to find out, like, the average age of people that use trail tacks. <laughs> to determine if there's a correlation there because I think you're on to something. Same thing with uh, whenever I find screwing steps. Because a lot of the places that I hunt, it's like I see a screwing step that's so old and you're not allowed to use them in a lot of these places. It's like I wonder if that screwing step has been there from a guy that just didn't care about the rules or didn't know or if it's literally been there long enough that there weren't rules in place back when it was placed. It seems like they're always real deeply grown into the bark. Yeah, like you said, that's another thing that you can, you know, whether it's tree stands in the trees, the scent wicks, the scrape drippers, trail tacks, there's all kinds of things that you can you can look at to try to determine, even cut shooting lanes to determine um, hunting pressure, especially in a pressured area, you know, if you found good siding around it to look and see how much is going on in that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be tough. Sometimes if you're hunting in an area that has a lot of guys that kind of hunt the same way that you do and try to be kind of minimalist, there's been guys that I bumped into at the parking lot and it's like they're doing the exact same stuff that, you know, they're, they've got the lightweight stand at the sticks. They're not leaving any sign out there. It's like, how would I ever know that that guy was hunting in that area if he's doing the same exact stuff that we are? I think that um, whole mentality of getting deeper than everybody else has kind of caught up to itself because now there's so many people that are hunting deeper than everybody else or you know like you said going with ultralight tree stands um, saddles to get further back in there using waders boats things like that that 
now it's almost a complete saturation across the board. You know, you have those people that are going in deep, and then you have those people who are still, you know, hunting a ladder stand 300 yards off the road or whatever. So I think there's kind of an even saturation across the board for that. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that too. I kind of got that feeling when I went out west for the first couple times too to hunt elk and mule deer. It seemed like there was a lot of guys that were hiking back there with camp on their back and intending on doing the same things because they had seen the same social media posts and read the same books. And yeah, and it seems like, you know, at least for me, the places where you have the most acreage and the least amount of roads and the most amount of nasty stuff like water and stuff, especially those big marshes, those are the easiest places where even if you got a ton of hunters and you got a ton of guys going deep, there's always going to be something that's missed. There's always going to be something that was overlooked. Uh, just because there's so much land and there's not enough hunters, even though there's a lot, you got enough land to kind of counteract it. But in some of those smaller areas where you only got, you know, well less than a thousand acres, it's like it, get, it gets really tough, especially if it's dry and there's nothing that prevents a guy from walking half, three quarters, one mile to get as far back as you can get. I think waders, like waders, uh, almost everybody out there that hunts or to some degree has some type of waders. So to me, like a water barrier doesn't slow them down from getting there. I think more than anything, probably just like really thick briars, whether it's Smilax or whatever it might be, you know, that's probably going to deter more people because not only you're crashing through all that making noise, but it's more painful for you to get through all that and you're going to get hung up on stuff. So I think, you know, briars would do more than like somewhere where you could put in a canoe and have to use a canoe or like you said, just flat long distances, you know, lightweight stands and stuff now you can throw them on and like you said it's nothing to walk you know three quarters of a mile to a mile even on some of these public ground areas you know that don't have many roads yeah it's more of a matter of the time it takes you to get there rather than the effort being too much and dragging it out for some people i'm sure some people don't hunt that far because they don't want to drag it out i don't know like the west virginia boys from uh saddle palooza looking at some of the hills they were dragging deer up I can imagine a lot of people hunt close to the roads there and they don't want to, they don't want to get too far off the roads. Yeah. Well, the last year that I did the Metro hunts, it was like, I was willing to shoot pretty much whatever during those Metro hunts. Cause I knew I was going to get meat and I knew it wasn't going to be that hard of a drag. It was going to be the easiest opportunity I was going to get. Whereas like you get a mile and a quarter, mile and a half back in there and you see that, that doe walk past and it's like, Hmm. Do I really want to pull the trigger on this one, or do I want to wait for something that's worth calling a buddy to help with the drag, you know? And game carts have really changed that as well. You know, a lot of people now have game carts, so they can go out and grab the game cart and drag it back, um, and then load the deer and wheel it out, so. Mm -hmm. Oh, one thing I will say about the water thing, uh, a lot of guys do have waders. I do see a lot of guys getting in some wet stuff. But it doesn't seem like the small game hunters will be as willing to cross water. There's a lot of areas, especially around the Twin Cities Metro, that get just pounded by squirrel hunters. But for the most part, they stay on dry ground. I haven't seen a squirrel hunter yet that's had to cross water to get to some remote island or something that, you know, he was looking for squirrels on. I've squirrel hunted out of a canoe. That's about it. Just floating down the creek squirrel hunting. But not like wading chest deep to an island to hunt a you know, a eight or 10 acre Island. I've never done anything like that. It's like you said, it, it would pay off. Oh, there's been some areas where I get back in there and it's like, man, there's squirrels every, like 
they just don't get hunted as much. It's like the same thing. Whereas like, if you wanted to be like a super hardcore squirrel hunter, you'd probably be willing to go through with that. But it's like all the squirrels taste the same. It's not like there's a Boone and Crockett squirrel that you're after. It's like, why would I go way in deep where the, there's going to be great squirrel hunting, or I can go into an easy walk and stop good squirrel hunting. Which is a valid point. I mean, I'm not going to go, you know, 1,800 yards to kill a squirrel when I can kill a squirrel 70 yards off the road. It's squirrel's a squirrel. Right. Unless you're going after your uh, squirrel super slam or whatever. That's right. That's on the books for this year. You got to get a black one. That has to be somewhere on the list. I have one already. I shot one of those uh, when I was back in college, I guess. It was a um, a gray squirrel in a black color phase. What about an albino? I've never even seen an albino. Do they? I'm assuming they exist. Yeah, they exist. I've just I've never seen one. Yeah, I haven't either. I've seen a couple black ones in my life, but that's about it. There's a uh, area down in Arkansas, northern Arkansas, southern Missouri, where black squirrels are actually pretty prevalent. Uh, huh. it's, it's a genetic characteristic. It's around one of the lakes down there, um, and that's where I killed mine. And I mean, I've probably seen hundreds of black squirrels in my day. Back to the the actual postseason scouting, I think for the most part, I think we've hit a lot of the major points. The only thing that I'll, I guess, I'll add is that in some of the areas, too, where usually I would scout the first time, maybe when there's, like, ice on the ground, if there's an area where, obviously, you need to get a kayak into, then it obviously pays to wait for that stuff to melt so you can actually get the kayak back in there, and then you got to take some of the <coughs> heavier waders or boots. Speaking of boots, I just got my uh, tingly boots in today with the odor traps sewn on. They are a lot noisier than I remember. They pretty much sound like wind pants. But I guess the uh, the thought process is if you have them up and you're actually walking through water, then the noise of the water kind of covers it up and it isn't really that big of a deal. And then if you have them down and snap down to you know the lower height, then you would stretch your pants around them. That kind of contains the noise and contains the extra fabric. You also got to think they're new. I think that yeah. a lot of that material, um, that heavy-duty briar-proof material, the more you use it, the softer it gets, the quieter it gets. Yeah. I was thinking about putting some stealth strips, too, on the inside thighs, but I'll see I'll see how they handle spring scouting first to see if I want to go through that much effort. So I know we talked about this just a, a little bit at the beginning. I don't even know if it will make the beginning of the podcast, but uh, shed hunting and shed seasons, it's not necessarily as big of an issue – in the east as it's becoming in the west so just wanted to kind of pick your thoughts on that and maybe the reasoning behind your thoughts on should there be shed seasons should it be allowed to collect sheds or not in the midwest and out east or well just in the, well mostly in the west i mean obviously in the east it's not that big of an issue um, but i know like out in the west i know colorado set a shed season this year uh, Nevada just done something crazy. I'm not even sure what they did, but so obviously my opinion is going to be a little bit skewed because I'm basically an outsider. Um, so my, my thought process is not going to probably be that of somebody that lives there and has done this for years. I would tend to think that more so than not, it's a good idea to have some type of shed restrictions. I do think that those shed restrictions should probably be tailored toward whatever kind of winter they're having. 
they have the ability to uh, become more or less strict depending on how much snowfall there is and, and that type of thing. Cause I know like, obviously like last year, like you said, the winter was really bad and it totally makes sense that they would want to implement shed restrictions on that type of a year. If the year's not that bad, it doesn't, I mean, if, I don't know how many shed hunters there are now versus what there were five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I don't know the impact. So I'm assuming that it can't be a bad thing to have shed restrictions for the health of the overall herd. So that's kind of my thoughts on it. Out east, I don't think it makes much of a difference just because the numbers of shed hunters versus, you know, the amount of available land and cover isn't really that big. I they're, agree. They're not, as, they're not as congregated, obviously, out east as they are in the mountains. Well, like out here in the west, you know, especially now <coughs> you see antler buyers everywhere because they're buying antlers that people are collecting and selling them. And that's the big thing out here is, you know, you can get quite a bit for elk sheds, mule deer sheds, and obviously the price deteriorates with the antler quality. So if it's a, a chalky white antler, you're not going to get as much for it as a, a brown antler, basically. And so I wondered if a lot of the pushback from that is coming from, you know, maybe the antler quality over time. So by, you know, May, June, you know, how long does it take for an antler to lose its color, basically? And I wonder if that has to do with the, you know, pushback that you're seeing shed hunters give with regulations that's being put in place. So like here in Utah last year, because the winter got so bad, they actually put a statewide ban on antler hunting or shed hunting, basically. Well, the problem with that is, like, the southern part of the state was not as affected by the winter as much as the northern part of the state. So people were complaining because they couldn't even go to the southern part of the state and hunt sheds com where the winter wasn't as bad compared to the northern part of the state where they were still buried in snow. So that was one of the, the big issues, you know, especially by trying to dictate the winter. The winter's going to vary a little bit by the area in which you're in. So to me, I think it just needs to be, you know, statewide, uh, you know, whether it's May 1st, May 30th, whenever, basically so that these deer get through the winter and then have the ability to begin, you know, getting fat built up, getting more nutrients from the spring before the people are allowed to go into those areas and, you know, possibly disrupt these deer, chase them around. You know, a lot of the big issue is that they're pushing deer to try to get them to drop antlers while they're there. So they're chasing them with snowmobiles, horses, whatever it might be to get them to dr actually drop their antlers while they're right there. So that's a big issue. Yeah. I figured there's probably more to it than the average person knows about um, who doesn't live there. That seems because it, it seems like out east, the majority of people that are looking for sheds are hunters, and they're looking for sheds because it's a fun thing to do, or because they want to find that match from that buck they saw last year, or whatever reason. Versus trying to collect the antlers for the sole purpose of trying to sell them, whereas like out west, it seems like there's, you know, even from looking at social media and stuff, it seems like there's a lot of people that they might not even be hunters, but they're shed hunters, and that's like a it's like a totally different thing out there, a totally different level of, you know, involvement. Yeah, it's free money laying out there. So, I mean, if you can get out there and find sheds, you can sell them and make money from it. So that's what a lot of people are doing. And, you know, even if there's a, a shed, cl uh, 
shed season closure or whatever, a lot of these guys will go out, sneak out on these areas, and create caches. So they'll go around and find all the sheds they can, and they'll cache them under a certain tree so that when season opens, they can run out to that tree, load up their pack, and start packing out, you know, all their their sheds that they need, basically. So, I mean, it's it's a tough line because, you know, technically there's a ban technically they're not picking them up you know can you hike in those areas when it's closed because if you're hiking you're pushing deer you know so to what extent do you do you close it you know do you close it for all human activity or do you close it strictly for shed hunting it's it's kind of a, a tough balance yeah that's a really good point and like i was saying earlier about that one place that i hunt they literally have just taken the stance where nobody goes in and if they catch you on that land Somewhere between March and August, they'll find you and, you know, do whatever. It's a national refuge, so they can, they have the authority to do that. <laughs> and that's what makes it interesting out here is, like you said, you've, you've got hikers, backpackers, uh, snowboarders, skiers that can be in some of these areas, horseback riders. So what's going to stop a horseback rider from going in there, riding his horse around, creating a shed cache while he's out there i mean you physically have to see him move a shed and then wait till shed season opens and ride back in there and load up his horse full of sheds and ride out during shed season yeah it seems totally impractical to have to rely on you know conservation officers and and whoever else to try and enforce that type of you know shed caching i know that there is some states that are doing things where they're taking like uh telemetry units and putting them inside of shed antlers and then you know laying a shed antler off the side of well-used trails or um, you know roads putting trail cameras over them and then even if somebody picks that shed up they can track that shed to wherever it goes so if that shed moves they get an alert then they can go to the the person's house where the shed's in the back of their truck and be like oh hey you know you picked up a shed out of season (laughs) here's your ticket it's like the robo deer with sheds. Exactly, and that's. I'd feel for, I'd feel pretty tempted to be honest if I was just out for a hike and I saw one within sight of the trail. I know quite a few people who've gotten tickets because of that exact reason. Is they're just like walking along and they're like, "Oh wow, you know, look at that big elk shed." Pick it up, you know, get down to the trailhead, and there's a conservation officer that cuts them a ticket for shed hunting. So it's it's a pretty pretty common thing actually, but you know that's the hard part is where and how do you draw the line to protect the animals? Right. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is. I've always kind of been a fan of you make your restrictions as individualized as possible for given areas, but even that puts a huge administrative strain on the the system, and it still leaves openings for people to to work outside of the law. Exactly. You know, could it be that you just generate enough revenue off of shed hunting and shed buyers that, you know, you can basically kind of discourage people from doing it, make them purchase a, you know, a ridiculous license for it? Up until shed selling license? Well, yeah. Commercial license? Yeah, so you have to have like a, in order to sell sheds, you have to have license, um, you know, so to shell sheds basically before a certain time frame or something like that you have to pay so much and then the shed buyers have to have to buy a license i mean i i don't know 
It's like taxing the antlers or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting dilemma for sure. Kind of glad don't have to worry about it out here. Yeah, out here it's a it's a bigger issue. Out here, the biggest thing we got to worry about is people shooting deer at night and leaving tree stands out when they're not supposed to. Yeah. And this whole CWD thing, man, that stuff's oh. some scary stuff. Yeah, we'll have to have a podcast at some point about CWD. Yeah, it's a that was a that was a really interesting conversation that you and Ernie had at Saddlepalooza. Yeah, I read some uh, some research since then that's really opened my eyes to oh holy crap, this could be really bad. So we'll have to we'll definitely have to do a CWD podcast on that. Yeah, for sure. We'll circle back with that one. It needs to be done. It does. And we need to we need to somehow get these companies that are selling outdoor related products, like bow companies, camouflage companies, to contribute money to CWD research until we can get this thing figured out. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's been around forever, but we still we still don't exactly know, and that's the scariest thing. Yep. All right, so spring scouting, postseason scouting, any additional thoughts? No, not really for me. I mean, most all mine's in season. Um, I don't put as much weight on postseason and, and spring as I do in season. How about yeah. <laughs> it's funny because we're so polar opposite on spring scouting, whereas – in some locations, 80 or 90% of the intel that I gather will be postseason. And then I try, usually it's the stuff that's further away, and I don't necessarily want to take the time to do an in season scouting trip without actually hunting it. Might scout in season with a stand on my back ready to, to set up, but I wouldn't take an in season scouting trip all on its own. So, yeah, it's, and I, I definitely feel like I learn a ton of big picture stuff when I'm spring scouting because I can see everything I would need to see and, you find the beds and you, you see how it all connects and you can say, oh, for the feeding here, then maybe the bed here. And I, I've always kind of found it to be, to be pretty useful. So I'll continue to do it just as soon as we get another, uh, another maybe two, three weeks of warm weather to get that snow to melt. <laughs> yeah. It's going to take you a while to, to defrost from that. And that's what, yep. that's what makes us great. Like you said, we're, we're kind of polar opposites in a lot of things. So it works well to, uh, to have this and have different views yeah for sure all right that'll do it for this week's episode a big special thanks to arrow hunter maker of the kestrel saddle which is absolutely a fantastic option to look into for those looking to shed a few pounds off their gear list or simply looking to gain other advantages like being able to position on the backside of a tree to remain hidden from sight up until the shot the Kestrel can be ordered as just the saddle itself or as a kit, which includes a tree strap, lineman's belt, and backband. As always, make sure to follow us on social media and check out the Facebook and Instagram pages for the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. The network recently added a couple new podcasts and has even started to separate the Western hunting-themed podcasts onto their own feed. 